Uh, let's, uh, let's take our Bible and go to the book of Romans, chapter number 3. Romans, chapter number 3. Uh, we're going to read uh, verse 21 down through verse number 31 in our text for tonight. And uh, tonight's message, we're looking at the, uh, the next solo we're studying, and that is faith alone. Faith alone. And uh, this one's been uh, quite intriguing for me to study. As, as, um, it is somewhat elementary for us because we're familiar with this, but uh, as you study deeper into certain subjects, you, you begin to see a lot of things that are just greater nuggets that uh, enhance that truth. And I pray that some of these truths would be uh, good for us as well tonight. So we're going to read verse 21 of Romans 3 and come down through verse number 31, if you would. Notice that Paul writes and says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. That was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means, on the contrary, we uphold the law. I know that's somewhat of a, a lengthier passage of Scripture, but I wanted to read the whole so you get the picture of what Paul is saying throughout this text and how faith is woven through it. Now, as we've been evaluating the five solas, we can see without a doubt how that these doctrinal truths, they really are pillars to Christianity. They're pillars to the gospel. They're pillars to what the local church is to be and uphold. And they essentially proclaim to us, in summary of them, that we are saved by Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, according to the Scriptures alone, and it is all to the glory of God alone. And so I kind of love how that all concludes and, and wo is woven together. So tonight we're looking at faith alone, and that comes from the Latin term sola fide, which that's what that means, is faith alone. And uh, why is faith alone so essential? Well, faith, just like grace, just like Christ, is also part of God's plan and the way in which we are saved. Now, when we look at faith, justification by faith alone was uh, what the reformer, Reformers called it the material principle of all theology. Uh, well, I'll try to explain this a little bit. They called the doctrine of Scripture alone the formal principle, the formal principle of all theology because... Scripture is where we get everything that we believe, right? All that we believe is rooted in what the Bible says. But they called it faith alone the material principle because it involves the very substance or heart of what transpires with us in salvation, uh, what we experience, what we understand and believe. And so the subject of faith takes us into the personal and individual aspect of salvation. Now, 
To many, this may seem very simple, very elementary. Uh, many of us probably have been saved by faith for a long time, and we know this and have uh, experienced it for a long time. But the reality is, there are many in our world and in religion and even in Baptist churches who do not grasp what it really means to be saved by faith alone. What exactly does that mean? Now, during the era of the Reformation, this was the truth that brought Martin Luther to true salvation. If you know anything about Martin Luther, I'll give you a little background of what he went through. He was a German monk who followed rigorously the rules and laws of the tradition of the Church of Rome. He was a miserable man who could never get true peace with God. And Luther said this, he said, Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God and with an extremely disturbed conscience. Now, you recall someone else who was extremely religious, somewhat blameless in his life. Who would that be? The Apostle Paul, right? You remember how he wrote in Philippians that if anyone could glory in the flesh, it would have been him. He was born a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, uh, circumcised the eighth day. Uh, regarding the law, he was a Pharisee. He was blameless touching the law. All these things he could list, but yet that was not enough, was it? He goes on to em- emphasize the need of Christ. So Luther was diligent in his religious duties, but that was not good enough and never could be good enough. And so that brings us to consider how is it that sinful man is truly saved? What must transpire in the heart of a sinner for them to be right with God? And the answer to that question is none other than faith alone. Not works, not religious devotion, not hopeful thoughts, or any other thing you could possibly think of but faith. Now, we see in our text, and I'll point you to our our scripture we just read for a moment. Throughout this text, you see these three essential solas, these doctrinal truths that regard our salvation. You see Christ through his redemptive work. You see grace, the unmerited favor uh, of God towards us. But then you'll also see faith woven through this, that it's through faith. It is by faith. You look at verse 24, you see that we're justified by faith as well as in verse 28. And so we are saved by grace alone, Christ alone, and faith alone. Now some say, well, isn't it one or the other? You say, no, we're saved by all of them. All of them work together in our salvation. The source of our justification is the grace of God. The ground of our justification is the redemptive work of Christ. And the means of our justification is faith alone in Christ alone. So we've already considered the other two, and now we're going to look at faith. And notice with me number one tonight, and the bulk of our message will be in number one. And I gave you the latter two points because I think they're important, uh, but essentially what we want to grasp is this first point and what goes along with it. Notice that faith alone applies justification to us. Faith alone applies justification to us as believers. Now, I want to break this down for a moment and really take a look at faith tonight. First one, firstly, I want you to see what faith is, essentially. What faith is? What is faith when we think of this? Because it's obvious that it's not a work, so what is faith? Well, the truth is there are many under the Christian umbrella who claim that they are saved by faith alone, and perhaps they may be, but many fail to understand what faith is and what it does. How do we see a lack of faith and understanding what faith is in today's church, in today's Christianity? 
Well, one way I think we see that is through the movement, what I would call easy believism. Easy believism movement. Now, uh, you think you, at first consideration, you may think, well, easy believism, believing is faith, right? So what could be wrong with that? Well, let me, let me point out a couple things about, or examples for this. Often a church may give an invitation that is used. There's nothing wrong with giving invitations. I know that some churches do, some churches don't. Um, I think we could look at, look at historical and biblical reference uh, for which one is right. Uh, I have my conviction on that. I, I personally don't see those given throughout the Bible, but there's nothing necessarily wrong with it as long as it's not used in a manipulative way. But here's what I do find, is that often a church will have an invitation, and that invitation is used to try and pull a decision out of someone in the audience. Now, that is what I find wrong with modern-day invitations. It is not to be used that way. The preacher will stand up front, and he will tell them, if you'll come forward and give your heart to Christ, you'll be saved. Anybody ever heard that? Sure. We've probably all heard that. Then he gives them assurance that they're going to heaven. Many will also use the Romans road as a quick method to, of getting a sinner to the point where they'll say the sinner's prayer. And then the preacher will tell them, oh, you're going to heaven because you've done this. Now, understand that when I speak of an invitation in that manner and using Romans road, God still saves people in spite of that, but not because of it, all right? So someone who has said the sinner's prayer, that doesn't mean that they're lost because God can save them in spite of that. It wasn't the prayer that saved them if God had worked in their heart in faith. But at the same time, a lot of those techniques are dangerous and really show a lack of understanding of what faith is. Is faith the very means of our salvation that changes us inside Something so shallow that it can be fabricated in that way? Is it something that we can manipulate people into having? I want you to understand that I can scare anybody with hell and get them to make a profession of faith. But that does not mean that they have truly been born again. And so that is why we must understand what faith is and how it works. Now, I I have known from experience and been involved in easy believism crowds And you know what I saw in that kind of a crowd? I saw the same people getting saved over and over and over again, never having true assurance of their salvation because they were led in something that does not even, you won't even find in the Scriptures. One thing you will not find in the Scriptures is the sinner's prayer. One thing you will not find in the Scriptures is, is, is give your heart to Jesus and then you'll be saved. And all the things that you see in modern Christianity... There's a, there's a lack of understanding what faith actually is and how it comes. So notice with me what faith is. I want to I point out to you, when we come to the biblical definition of faith, I gave you the Greek uh, definition here. It's the Greek word pistis. And it's a noun that describes a state of believing on the basis of reliability of the one trusted. It is trust, confidence, faith. It also uh, can in, include the words persuasion or commitment. You'll see other Greek definitions that relay that. Now, true faith that genuinely saves a sinner has three elements to it. Three elements. And I believe you can see these elements through the Scriptures, but I want to point these out to you. The problem is many think that faith is only one or two without the third. Now, let me point these out for you, and I I have them in in your notes. Some have described them a few different ways. For example, Charles Spurgeon described them as knowledge, belief, and trust. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great preacher as well, described them as awareness, assent, and commitment. 
All of those convey the same truth within their own category, within their own element. But notice with me the first element here. The first element of faith is knowledge. In order for anyone to believe anything, they have to hear something to believe, right? So faith is not empty on, and based on nothingness. Every faith must have some form of content to it. R.C. Sproul comments and says, I cannot have faith, have God in my heart if he is not in my head. Before I can believe in, I must believe that. So in order to believe in God, you must first believe that God is. So uh, there's an element of knowledge that one must have in order to first believe. Every so-called faith is founded upon knowledge of something or someone. There's no such thing as faith in nothing, all right? Even the atheist who professes he does not believe in God, he has faith in something. He believes in himself. He believes in his science. It teaches him there is no God. So, so faith is grounded in what comes to mind, real knowledge of what is professed to be true. Now, for example, I'll point this out to you by way of his, his, historically. Before the Reformation, the Roman Catholic Church neglected to teach the Scriptures to the people, including a lot of the clergy. So what happens if you're not taught the Scriptures? You don't have knowledge of what the gospel is, right? So without the Bible, you don't have knowledge of how to be saved or why you need to be saved. So they were ignorant of the gospel. How then could any of them be saved without knowledge of the truth? Well, here's what the church said. The Roman church said they could be saved by implicit faith, which means it was not necessary for them to actually know anything. They only had to trust that the church was right. In other words, they're saying, put your trust in us, not in what the Scriptures say. You don't have to know what the Bible says. The church was to be deemed right, even if people didn't know what those teachings were. So you see that lack of knowledge. The true knowledge is essential to faith. You cannot have faith in that which you do not know. That's the first grounding here. I read another story. I thought this was somewhat humorous in a sense, where there was a man who was being interviewed for membership in a church, and they asked him, what he believed about salvation, because it's important to know what someone believes about salvation, especially that they are saved before they enter the church, right? Well, he replied that he just believed what the church believed. Well, they proceeded to ask him, what does the church believe? And he said, the church believes what I believe. <laughs> well, they asked again, well, just what do you and the church believe? Well, he thought for a moment, we believe the same thing. <laughs> You can't have a belief based on no true knowledge. You have to have tangible knowledge of what you're believing in. Uh, and so, firstly, faith is grounded on knowledge, truth that has entered the mind. That is, that's why the Great Commission is so important, right? How will they believe except they hear, as we look at in Romans uh, chapter number 10. But there's a second element to faith. The second element to faith is assent or agreement. So you hear knowledge of what the gospel is, but then there's also agreement that this knowledge that you're hearing is true, that the message is actually true. With knowledge of the gospel, one must mentally agree that the gospel is true. This is often where the modern understanding of faith stops. This is where many manipulate and use the gospel as I mean, do you, do you agree with this? Do you believe this? Yes, yes, yes. You're saved. That's usually what happens. Now I'll say this, that no preacher has any right to tell anyone that they're saved. The Holy Spirit has that job, not me. Because even if someone professes faith, I can't see the heart as to what really went on there. 
I pray and hope that it is genuine, and if it's genuine, it will be bore out in their life. But no person has the right to tell anyone that they're saved. Okay, that's, that's, that's the Holy Spirit's job, to give us that assurance. But what we find is that this is often where modern understanding of faith stops, with just a mental acknowledgement of belief. As long as we can get an acknowledgement of the gospel as true, then supposedly that person has saving faith. Wrong. Here's the reality. You can know and agree that the scriptures and the gospel are true without it affecting your heart. There's a difference between head knowledge of the gospel and having a heart changed by the gospel. And this truly, I believe, is a more pervasive problem in the church today. Just because you profess faith does not mean that you possess faith. There's a difference. Many enter the church and agree with the gospel, but have never been changed by the gospel. Now, I was reading another account of, of John Wesley. Many of us have heard from him. Heard of him. He was a Methodist evangelist in the 1700s who had been an active preacher before his conversion, as some testify. He knew Christian doctrine and the gospel, but it had not affected him in the heart. And one evening, Wesley went to a small meeting in London where they were studying through Romans, and they were reading Luther's preface on the book of Romans. And during that meeting, Wesley was converted. He said himself, he said, about a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for my salvation. An assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. I was somewhat fascinated when I read that. Now, some will say that maybe he was already saved and he just came to realization of what salvation was. Maybe that's true, but then there's also some, there are many who are active in the Lord's work but get saved later. They had head knowledge. Maybe they were a cultural Christian, raised in the church, knew all the right things to know and say, but they had not truly been born again. And you remember what Jesus said about being born again. Except you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, I think we see an example of this kind of faith where there's a mental acknowledgement based on knowledge, but not real heart change, not something affecting the heart. In John 2 and verse 23 through 25, notice this with me. We know that Jesus, he, he did all kinds of miracles, all sorts of things throughout his ministry that, that proved him to be the Messiah. And often it brought in professing disciples, but not true disciples. If you want to see an example of that, go read John 6. He told them some very hard truths. Many of them left him, never to follow him again. He asked his real disciples, will you also go away? And what was their confession through Peter? Master, you have the words of eternal life. You are the Christ. Where can we go? There's nowhere else to go, right? Now, now look at John 2, verse 23 through 25 for a moment. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, notice what it says. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Now, if we stop there, we might think, oh, great, there's a great crowd here that's believed on him. But look at what, what, how John finishes the chapter. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people, and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, when we look at what's happening here, what kind of faith did those Jews have in Jesus who believed in him? The kind that only agreed with what they saw 
in Christ without their heart truly being affected. They saw the miracles of Christ, and they're, oh, wow. But their hearts were not truly changed, and Jesus does not entrust or commit himself to them because he knows what is actually in them. He knows what was truly inside of them. John Calvin comments and says, it now remains to pour into the heart itself what the mind has absorbed. And so that is truly what is needed because many profess they believe only because they have a mental agreement or acknowledgement of Jesus and who he is and what he's done. Now that brings us to the number three, this third element of faith, and this element is most crucial. This third element is that of trust or commitment. This is what saving faith generates, a true and full trust in one Lord and one Savior because of what He's done. It is a yielding of our life and soul to Christ, not just an agreement upon who He is and what He did. You remember what Paul said in, John, in Romans 10.10. 10. He said, for with the heart one believes and is what? Justified. With the mouth one confesses and is saved. So you see what Paul is emphasizing here, that, that true salvation happens through by means of the heart, right? The heart. This is something that affects the heart. It is more than knowledge and agreement to that knowledge. It is a trust, a persuasion. It is a being convinced, a commitment based on who Christ is and the knowledge of the gospel. It is something that truly transforms our life. This is why just having the first two is not enough. Not enough. It's not enough just to hear the gospel. It's not enough just to mentally agree with the gospel. We must believe in the sense of trust and commit ourselves to Christ in the gospel. Now here's something I want to ask. Do you know who has the first two elements but not the third? The devil himself. The devil himself has the first two elements, but not the third. Remember what James says in James 2 and verse 19, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder or tremble. Here's the reality. Devils have knowledge of the Bible and know that the Bible is true. They don't deny that. That's why they try to distort it. That's why they try to uh, do what they can to pervert it. But they are not saved. Devils hate God. Devils oppose God, much like depraved mankind does. You see, for the devils to be saved, which is not possible, by the way, but by way of example, they would have to be changed in the very core of their being. This, friend, is why the new birth is non-negotiable. Because you and I, by our natural disposition, we have a hostility towards God. We do not like what He says about us in His Word. Many professing Christians have only the same faith that devils possess. James Montgomery Boyce commenting and said that very same thing in essence. He said, believing the truths of Christianity itself, if we do not go on to the third necessary element, only qualifies us to be a demon. So you notice that saving faith includes all three of these elements. Knowledge, agreement, and trust are all requirements for this. Faith that truly saves to, is, is, something, is, is something that is a full trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is not a partial trust, or to be almost convinced of this, 
but it is to be wholly convinced that Christ alone is the only way and that without Christ I am condemned to eternal judgment and I must believe on him. Here was Paul's testimony. I've always loved this. We, we sing a song, a hymn that's uh, based on this very verse. In 2 Timothy 1.12, he says, But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am convinced that he is able to guard until that day which has been, what has been entrusted to me. So you notice that Paul had believed, and he is convinced, he's persuaded of this. But notice with me, letter B tonight. We see what faith is, essentially. That's important for us to know. The three elements of faith. But notice with letter B, how faith comes effectually. How does it come to us effectually, in an effectual manner? Since it involves these three aspects, why doesn't faith, why doesn't every person among churches possess this saving faith? Many only have the first two elements, which is, which is possible even in our lost nature. But to have this trust and commitment deep within comes by way of God's supernatural work. You see, the reality is sinful men cannot and do not possess saving faith in and of themselves. What is it that pleases God? Hebrews eleven six. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. So faith is what pleases God. What does God tell us about our natural condition in our flesh? Romans 8, 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So how then can anyone possess faith that saves? The answer is through God's sovereign grace that He works in us through the Spirit and through the Scriptures. Now, concerning the first element of faith for a moment, if you have never heard of Christ, you have no knowledge that you need faith to be grounded on. This is why Paul said in Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. For those countries and those people that never hear the gospel, there's no way for them to have faith on something they do not know. God does not just unilaterally save people outside of the gospel. This is why the Great Commission is so essential. We must go to the nations. We must go to them. Those who have never heard need to hear. This is how we rescue the perishing. But even then, though the gospel may reach every nation, that does not guarantee that every individual will fully believe. Many hear the message of the gospel and will even agree with it, yet remain lost in their sins. Jesus' parable of the soils demonstrates that point, which really is a parable of the heart of people. Often it appears that one may believe it and receive it, but then you find they go astray and never return, and they reject even to the, to the end. Why is that? Because they lack the third element of faith, which is trust and commitment. You see, our fallen nature, sinful nature, does not have the ability to generate a committed trust of the soul that changes our life forever. We don't have the ability to do that. We just don't. So this faith that saves, understand, is a sovereign gift of God wrought in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And we, we covered this somewhat in depth not long ago as we came through Ephesians. Ephesians 2.8, we all know this verse. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. What's not our doing? Grace, faith, salvation. The Greek clause there refers to all of it. <laughs> all of it. 
The grace, not ours. Salvation, not of us. Faith, not of us. It is all the gift of God. So we do not understand. We do not bless God with the gift of our faith. But rather, God blesses us with the gift of faith. The gift of faith is imparted to sinners through regeneration, which is the new birth. Now, this is what Jesus told Nicodemus, a very religious Pharisee of his day. In John 3, 3, I mentioned it earlier. Jesus says to him, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Why would Jesus say that? I mean, after all, he's so religious. He believes in the one true God. He believes the messianic promises. He believes all of these things. He has a mental agreement with what's being said. But Nicodemus did not have a genuine, heartfelt trust in the very man he's talking to, which would only come about through the new birth. Every man, no matter how religious they may appear to be, must be born again. And the Greek term there for again, it literally means from above. So when Jesus says you must be born again, he is saying to Nicodemus, you must be born from above. From above. If one possesses the ability to generate this kind of faith that saves... What's the point of the new birth? Why do we need it? In fact, we do need it. We're desperate for it. If you look at John chapter 1 and verse 12 through 13, you'll notice this connection. He says in John 1, 12 and 13, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Now, I hear that verse quoted all the time. But to only quote that verse, you cut the sentence in half. The sentence continues. Verse 13, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So you see that this receiving Christ and believing Christ is directly interwoven with being born of God, which is not according to our will or our power, but according to Him. We see this. Receiving and believing are linked to the new birth. You know, we sing the wonderful hymn. I forget the name of the hymn. I meant to look it up. But this verse always sticks in my mind. I know not how the Spirit moves convincing men of sin, revealing Jesus through the Word, creating what? Faith in Him. This is the work of God. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. This faith that saves is not a work we do but a gift that we receive wholly by God's free grace. Notice with me, second, thirdly, we see what faith does eternally. We see what faith is. We see how faith comes to us. But now we also see what faith does. Why is it so essential? Why is faith alone so essential? What does it do? Well, as we come back to our text in Romans 3, Verse 28, for example, it's, written, it's woven throughout, but I'll look at verse 28. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. You see, justification is the answer to the most important question for sinful mankind. How can sinful men be made right before a holy God? How can that be possible? Because God in His holiness must bring justice upon all sin. All sin. 
That means we as sinners have an infinite weight of guilt and condemnation that rests upon us. We must receive our due reward. We're deserving of it, we're worthy of it, and God must execute justice upon all sin. Unless there is a way that sinners can somehow be relieved of that condemnation. And this is where not understanding faith alone leads to men trying to use their own merits and works to apply to their salvation in an attempt to be right before God. For example, Roman Catholicism insists that justification comes through religious works. They admit that faith is part of it, but there must be other things added to it. For for example, keep the sacraments. You must keep the sacraments, along with other religious demands. And if that's not sufficient, there's always purgatory. Purgatory, where you can go undergo punishment for your sins that were not adequately confessed or forgiven in this lifetime, and then you'll make it into heaven a little later. Can you imagine how miserable that kind of a life is? Must be. I cannot imagine being trapped in a religion in which I'm constantly fretting. Am I right with God? Did I lose my standing with God? The reality is, it is miserable to think of our justification depending upon us. Many of us have probably heard of Matt Walsh. He's a pretty well-known conservative with uh, the Daily Wire, but he, I, I was watching an interview by him today. Ben Shapiro was interviewing him on a show about his religion, and he was asked what he believed and how salvation works with his religion. And he is a professing Catholic. He's a very religious Catholic. And he professed that faith and works go hand in hand in order for us to make it to heaven. In his view, works are part of faith, not the result of faith. Now, Matt does a lot of things that I'm thankful for. I'm thankful for his charge against abortion and all sorts of other issues. But you understand that all the good things that one does in society or even for a good cause, none of those things can justify us before God. The good does not outweigh the bad, nor does the good erase our bad. And What we need is both. We, we, we need our good to be erased, but we also need to be made righteous before God. And that's what it means to be justified. The word here for justified comes from the world of law and the court system. It describes the act of a judge acquitting an accused person. The Greek term here for justified refers or means to render a favorable verdict. Specifically in reference to God, it means to be found in right, in the right, being free of charges. So when someone is justified, they are freed of their guilt and declared innocent or righteous. Now, this is important to understand that justification has those two aspects with it. Acquittal of guilt and a declaration of righteousness. Now, this English word for, uh, that we use, justification, it comes from two Latin words. Justice, meaning just and righteous, and facio, meaning to make, so to make righteous. According to the understanding of justification based on the meaning of the Latin word, that's the word that's found in the Latin Vulgate Bible. Justification has been interpreted by some to be the process an individual goes through to become holy. And this is why Martin Luther had such a terrible struggle with justification in this doctrine. He used what was known as the Latin Vulgate Bible and thought that he had to earn justification. So he entered the monastery, August 17th, 1505, and he said he did so in order to save my soul. 
In order to save my soul, he did this. He was the model monk. He labored in prayer. He fasted. He even beat his body to try and subdue his flesh. He was rigorous with doing penance, entering the confessional booth for hours at a time. And I read that he did so even to the extent he wearied those who listened to him and they would tell him to leave and come back when he had a sin worth confessing. He stayed there for so long. And Luther, as I mentioned earlier, was so frustrated and had no peace. And he went on to say, and I quote, How can I stand before the holiness of my judge with works polluted in their very source? And that's the reality. Even what good works we do, it has a polluted source. And the answer for Luther and the rest of mankind is that he can't pass the bar of God's justice on his own works. And here's what Paul says in Galatians 2 and verse 16. Ye know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have been who have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law no one will be justified. Paul just repeats himself over and over in that one verse. Not justified by the works of the law but only by faith. And why is it that he stresses that point? Well, to the Galatians, the Judaizers were trying to add the law to faith, right? You must be circumcised and do this. They want to add Moses on top of Jesus. But what Paul says here refutes any and all forms of religious acts of making us right with God. There is no work at all that man does to contribute to his salvation. We can't earn it. George Whitfield had a great illustration. He said, what, get to heaven on your own strength? Well, you might as well try to climb to the moon on a rope of sand. Can't do that. So how is it that we are acquitted for all of our guilt and declared righteous? It is by faith alone. And this is what Luther discovered while studying Romans. Especially went to the Greek language because the Greek term was different from his Latin translation. It conveyed the truth that God declares a person righteous while also acquitting them of the guilty charges. Now let's look at this in Romans chapter 4. Go over one page. You may not have to turn a page. I don't. It's on the same page for me. But Romans 4, and look at verse 1 through 8 for a moment. Notice what Paul writes here. He says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works his wages are counted, not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord will not count his sin. You remember what the psalmist said, Lord, if you should count our sin, who can stand? The answer to that is nobody. And what do you see in this passage through faith? Like Abraham, sinners are declared righteous. And like David, our sins are covered. Both aspects, sins covered and removed. We are declared righteous. And this, when Luther realized this, this is what, he, what, what changed him. 
He said as he came to this moment where he realized that the just shall live by faith and that we are saved by faith, he said, here I felt as if I had altogether been born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. Do you remember the moment that you were born again? The weight of sin lifted. Salvation had come. You see, faith justifies the guilty sinner before our holy God in a personal and individual way. James Montgomery Boyce summarizes it this way, justification is the act of God by which he declares sinners to be righteous by grace alone through faith alone because of Christ alone. And friend, here's the reality of justification. There is never a time, past, present, or future for the Christian, for those who are saved by faith, in which sin and its penalty will ever be placed upon you ever. You say, well, what about the sins I commit after I've been saved? Christ atoned for those in advance too. You see, Christ died for your past sins, your present sins, and your future sins. That's what grace has done. That is what justification does. It declares you cleansed from all of them and declared righteous before God. Now, Paul will argue in Romans, that's not an excuse to sin. Because I have heard people say, oh, I'll just do this. I'm a Christian. It's under the blood anyway. Friend, one who takes that position, I have to wonder if they truly know what they're talking about. Understand that grace does not give us license to sin. Grace gives us liberty and freedom from sin so that we may live in a way that pleases God. Jesus, with his bloodshed and death, paid for the sins of all his people that they would ever commit past, present, and future. And that causes me to think what a miserable weight of justice our Savior bore on the cross that dark day. We'll never be able to fathom it. So we see that faith alone, faith alone applies justification to us. Now let me very quickly come through this. I have other scriptures here, but this is, this is bonus, I guess, in a sense that adds to it. But the The focus is what faith does in the realm of justification. But it's not where faith ends. I think this is important too. Faith alone affects sanctification in us as well. This is is where we see that faith, saving faith, letter A, changes our life. Saving faith changes our life. We are not born again only to believe and then faith rests dormant within us. If we are truly born again and we know Christ, what did Paul say? If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things have become new. And so while we are justified by faith alone, faith that justifies is never alone. What do I mean by that? I mean that true faith leads to a life that manifests good works to the glory of God, to manifest Christ in this world. For reference, you can read James 2, 17-26. I won't go there for time's sake. I want to come through this briefly. But what you'll find here is that James will pose the question, can faith save him? Meaning without works. James is talking about a certain kind of faith. What kind of faith? The kind of faith that is spoken but not seen. A kind of faith that's just generic, just the two first two elements, mental acknowledgement and knowledge rather than genuine conversion and change. You see, faith that justifies before God is also seen among men. You say, well, how can faith be seen? It's inside, right? It's seen through our works, through our life. It is easy for one to profess faith. A lot of people do. 
But it's a whole other thing for that faith to be proven in their life. And to illustrate that, James is going to use Abraham and Rahab, people who had a profession of faith, but their life also demonstrated by what they did. You go down to verse 24. He says, it may, which may appear contradictory to Paul when he says, faith, faith alone, we're justified by works as well. He's talking about in the sight of men. For James, faith alone means that kind of faith that is a mere intellectual agreement without genuine personal trust and that bears fruit in the life of a Christian. And so the principle here is what he says in verse 17. Faith by itself, if it ha- does not have works, is dead. And here's what I believe is an issue in today's churches. There are a lot of professors of faith, but few possessors of faith. A lot of them who, who, who possess faith in Christ, but their life is totally opposite. Friend, if you do not have conviction for sin in your life, there's something wrong. There's something wrong. You cannot live a life of sin and be comfortable in it. A possessor of faith has a changed life, and this is the point of saving faith. Faith enables us to actually do good works that glorify God, which we could not and did not do before faith in Him. Ephesians 2 and verse 10 will tell us that. So Paul's sense of justification is essentially in the eyes of God, while James is bringing it out in the eyes of man. So saving faith, understand, it is a sanctifying faith. Good works do not bring us to faith, but faith brings us to good works. And good works in a Christian's life testify to the world around us. that What we have is a faith that's real and supernatural. Martin Luther said this, God does not need your good works, but your neighbor does. I think that's a good way of putting it. Saving faith continues for life, let it be. It continues for life. There are often people who profess faith that may continue for a little while, but then they forsake him and want nothing to do with him. What are we to think of such? Are they backslidden? Are they in a season of rebellion? It's possible. But oftentimes, there are those who simply just never had true faith to begin with. They went out from us, but they were not of us, as 1 John 2.19 tells us. This does not mean that their faith failed, but that they never had genuine faith. Because if faith is real in the heart of someone, that faith cannot be undone or lost. It continues. What God works in His people, He does not fail in the end. And lastly, number three... Faith alone also anticipates glorification for us. It looks forward to the future. It looks forward to the promise that we have. Why is it that you and I have confidence of heaven? How can we both be so sure that there's a resurrection coming? Because faith in the Word of God is not something that can be undone. We take God at His promises and what He has planned for us. Romans 8.30, those whom He predestined, He also called. Those whom He called, He also justified. Those whom He justified, He also glorified. Justification, we've experienced that by faith, but that also means our glorification is at hand. And so understand this, Christian, this is a point of comfort. Our glorification is as sure as as if it's already happened. Every believer on earth is just as secure as every believer that's already in heaven. And friend, don't let that, don't, don't ever lose sight of that. You look forward by faith to the future of our glorification, and that ought to probe you, letter B, to live faithfully for God because of His promised future He's given us. Colossians 3, 1 and 2. If you've been risen, if you've been raised with Christ, 
Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above and not on things that are on the earth. So when we look at faith alone, it is core, it is essential, it is a pillar to the gospel, it's a pillar to our truth, Christianity, it's a pillar to our church. And so faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, this is the core of the gospel and what we must uphold and what we believe. So I hope that these truths have encouraged you and reminded you of what it means to be a Christian and what it means to be in Christ and who you are before Him, that you are indeed justified. He has cleansed you of your sin and pronounced you righteous. and You never have to worry about the guilt and condemnation again because Christ took care of that at the cross.